For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If I'm in the known, I'm safe. But if I'm in the unknown, whether it's my unknown of my knowledge, like if I'm exposed, but also if I have to move out of my position of power, then I feel a little flaily like that. Is, so it, it's a real fear base and you, which is intolerable. It's so intolerable. intolerable. And, and even to slow people down sometimes in couples therapy and say, you know, can you express them? That's a good point. And you could see really the anxiety coming up in the chest. Somebody that is saying, I don't actually feel much anxiety. You say, well, let's do some joining statements and see how that feels. You will literally see them almost crawl out of their skin. They might for that. Well, okay, that's a good point. But to be able to say it and feel it is a real challenge. And your question is a good one. Like what is going on? And that's what we want to talk about. What is going on is really something to feel deeply compassionate about in yourself, if it's you or in your partner or sibling or friend, if it's them. And that truly is an experience of almost a young panicked threat that's been disowned. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is the third episode of a series that Ann Kelly and myself, Sue Marriott, are doing called Disarming Human Defenses. Today, we're going to take one in particular and dismantle it and explore it and hopefully help you recognize it in yourself and in other people and kind of be able to navigate it a little bit more consciously. Yeah, recognizing it, as we've been speaking in the series, recognizing it sometimes is the hardest part. And we need our defenses. We're not trying to send out the word out there. Get rid of the defenses. Just be open at all times, right? We need them. Well, the truth is we could say that, but it wouldn't work <laughs> because they are driven unconsciously. So we don't have to worry about someone hearing us and going, oh, okay, I'll just put that down right, right now. Right, <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty safe bet. That's a good point. And we have those defenses to protect our nervous systems and to protect our sense of self. And depending on our histories, some things that feel like a threat to us really aren't. And in fact, they're a block. So one example of that is depending on the history you were raised in, being close and being intimate with somebody, being open to somebody in an intimate way proved to be pretty threatening for you as a kid, as a child. And so your nervous system grew into that. Exactly. Like we both want to be close. And this is very typical. We want connection. We want to be close. And then when it comes, we get super scared and we do things that we sometimes are not aware of to block, right? Or to kind of help regulate so it doesn't get too close, you know, close, but not too close. The difficulty of that is like when you said we're scared, a lot of times we actually don't feel the fear. We don't feel fear just our body responds and acts out so fast that we don't even experience. I'm not afraid of intimacy. I'm right here. But we can see some signs that intimacy really is threatening to you. 
So today we're going to take one of those. In the end, there's not even a good name for it. It's really more of a, it's a defensive move, let's call it. And it's one I imagine most people are familiar with either having it been done to you or doing it. And it's something that I've certainly done, but I needed help realizing that I was even doing it. And we're basically, we're roughly calling it kind of going one up, or sometimes it looks like over-functioning. Sometimes it looks like kind of the one that knows and that's going to explain and tell you everything. So maybe we should start with some examples of what that sounds like so that we're clear on the front end of where we're going here. Great idea. So again, kind of coming back to why we might not recognize it is somebody makes a bid for connection to us. They're telling us this thing about, oh my gosh, I went to this incredible place. It was so wonderful. And you want to tell them about it. And so you're you're wanting to have this shared experience. It's a bid for intimacy. So the counter move would be, okay, she's coming at me. She wants to share something with me. And I say, oh yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. It's awesome. Been been there, done that. I've been there. I went there three times. The specifics, you'll hear the move related to, it's a little dismissive, and I know many of you are familiar with that, but we're being more specific. And the way that is dismissive is that I'm saying that I already know I'm more competent in this subject than you are. I'm going to either give you a paragraph about it. I'm going to explain it. There's just a lot of explaining and like it's one directional instead of me catching the ball of like, oh, tell me about it. Even though I've already been, I'm going to let her spell it out and say more about it. That's a joining, right? Or yes, I love that too. What did you love about it? Would be another version of joining. The one up defense is where that I have to keep my hands on the wheel and I have to control the conversation and I have to, to be clear that I'm the one in the know. People will hear this related to, you know, a lot of times people call it mansplaining, but it's not just men that do it. And you'll hear the power dynamic and we want to include the more overarching kind of patriarchal system that this is embedded in and power over system that this is embedded in. And again, when we say the patriarchal system, we're not saying this is a man thing. Patriarchy is about power over. It is not about some sort of gender division between men and women and men do this and women don't. Clearly not. But our whole culture is based on this idea right now that if we're not over, we're under. So we lose the idea that intimacy and relationality is a safe thing because if I join you and I go, oh my gosh, tell me more, we don't really realize that the idea of doing that feels threatening. So if you think about it out there and you realize somebody tries to tell you something and instead of being able to catch them, you find yourself almost anxious to talk or anxious to jump in and then tell them your expertise. It may be that if you, this fear of intimacy, but it's this feeling of threat of getting close. And if you have a threat of getting close, we have these defense systems and there's lots of different ones that fit in this category, but this is one specific one that I think a lot of us can struggle with and not recognize it, that that defense comes up and we don't feel the threat. We're just excited to tell you about my time I went to Madrid. Like it's not that I feel scared of you that you went to Madrid. It's that I'm joining you because I'm telling you about my trip. And as a matter of fact, if I try to give you feedback about this, I mean, there's a couple of things to do about it. So let's get into that too. But if I try to give you feedback about it, like, well, my trip was a little different. I want to, if I try to steer it back in my direction, or if I say, hey, you know, I noticed that you're doing this thing. How do you think you'll receive that most typically? 
if I'm in my defense and I hear that, now I'm going to hear that as critical, it's going to create a little bit of threat in my body even more intensely. So now instead of going, oh, whoops, unless I've had insight into it, if I've had some insight into it, I'm like, oh my God, did I do that thing? I'm doing it again. That would be the wonderful. That's the ideal catch. Right. Because that's the catch. But most typically, most automatically, somebody is going to, if you get feedback about it and you're not aware of it, then you're going to explain what you meant. Oh, yes. That's the very most common (laughs) response to this. And I'm going to correct you that you're wrong about the feedback that you're giving me. That is another, you know, a second level of going one up. Right. And once you get attuned to it, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it in interviews. You're going to see it happen. You're going to see it in conversations. And you'll probably, hopefully, will catch yourself doing it some like part of the thing is recognizing it when it's happening, but then also, okay, let's say Anne was, or let's say, let's keep going. And I explained to you of like, no, 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 I I wasn't cutting you off. I was just telling you that when I went before it was like this. Right. And more likely you're going to probably have a little, a little bit more oomph to it. Like I was just trying to join you. God, like you want me to hear you. And when I try to get excited with you, you know, now you're saying it. And then the inclination to somebody else might then, especially if they've been in this power over dynamic and they're used to being the one a bit under, it would be to seed. Like, no, no, you're right. No, tell me like, like, so, because then I'm going to feel, and what happens in these kind of dynamics is that you feel the elevation and the other person feeling more and more threatened. And so We then, when we struggle with this defense a lot, we teach other people to seed, to kind of step back. And we teach, it's like, no, 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 you're right. You're right. I'm being silly. I'm being silly. Like, and so now I'm disregarding what it was that I, like, if I was trying to share with you my trip about Madrid, then I'm in my emotional excitement about it. And that's what I'm wanting to catch. I'm not wanting to know your knowledge about Madrid. But if we're caught in this defense It is the intellectual of knowing and of expressing your expertise in it that makes you feel safe, makes you feel comfortable in your body. And what you don't realize it is that that defense is blocking that ability to feel connected, which is really is what is a little threatening to you. And you don't feel that threat. You just feel the excitement of being in the know. Yeah. It it just feels like you're right. And the cultural piece is really important here because this is how we're trained, but especially if you have been raised you know, kind of in the male script, like if you've been raised socialized male, this will have really, really, really been reinforced. Again, we're emphasizing it's not actually a gender dynamic, it's a power dynamic, but it is a power dynamic that shows up differently related to how we're socialized. So I think that, you know, how much time do women, people who have been raised in the script of women, just so automatically protect the ego of the other person? Like it is built into our DNA. Anne and I work on this really actively, even in how we interact in interviews and things like that, that we see ourselves doing it, our language where we kind of ask a question when really we mean to say something. Like in other words, taking up our half of the space, it's an actual real challenge, but that's kind of what we would call going under or going one down. The seeding is one down and then the knowing and declaring is the one up. Yeah. And I, I love how you're saying that. I mean, we, we could also get into that exact thing. It isn't as we are in no, in no way saying that women are never in the know and they're always seeding and men are always in the know and never seeding. Been plenty of relationships, both same sex as well as where the woman is used to kind of taking the more powered position and the man is used to seeding. And so what we're trying to do is talk about the intimacy of coming together 
in a more relational connected way. And the only way to do that is to remove the power from the equation and get in the connection. So if power is what keeps you safe, if you think, oh, especially when you were saying being raised in sort of a man culture, being raised in sort of the masculinity identity of if you are in that identity, you should be in the know, you should know. And to not know is weak. To feel, want to feel close is a little weak. You should be in the one. You're going to take care and be in the know. So having to back off and kind of feeling that part of being in the unknown, when we sit in an unknown state, it really can threaten that sense of who you are and who you think you're supposed to be in that identity. Absolutely. And, you know, you were saying that we really don't want to say that it is just a gender dynamic, but we also don't want to shy away from saying that there's also a gender dynamic and that that is actually also true. To me, I think of like this idea of white fragility or if you're talking with somebody and you say something about white fragility and you get the big, oh my gosh, you know, uh, or uh, privilege, white privilege, and you get the big response, that's just another example of the threat is actually there, but there's a disownment of that vulnerability of, you know, the idea of fragility. So when we try to give feedback, like sometimes we're working with someone or let's just say in the world, and if I bring up the term patriarchy, like just that word alone might be enough to evoke the one-up or the defensiveness and get them to begin to explain to me how I'm wrong about naming this power dynamic and explaining to me what it really means. You know, that's just an example. Again, I just want to keep the cultural part in it, but the examples are more. Uh, yes, we, we don't want to shy away from that. There is absolutely a cultural dynamic. I agree with you. And so what about that when somebody gets their back up because you're trying to name it? And if you were to try to use the term fragile, white fragility or patriarchy, and the person bristles, uh, bucks up, uh, you know, chest up, what next? Like what then? For me, I think it's really important to explore what is it about that, that like what happened in the body right then? Like I notice when I use that word and to bring people into their body, which is hard for all of us, hard for me to do. I can relate to this when I'm being schooled by my children especially if I feel like I've worked really, really hard and I, and something that has come to me through a lot of hard, hard, you know, struggles, which I feel like they can't necessarily identify with because of the different generations and what we provided for them versus what we went through. And if I get schooled on my privilege, I can feel the threat. While the interesting thing is they're actually right. There is a way that I'm holding this sense of myself as having to, had suffered. And when somebody says something to me about a privilege, I feel unseen. And then it hits my feelings. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, well, shame, I think, right? That like, because we know that there's truth in it. And then we don't want to feel that shame. And we also don't want to feel the power dynamic of being told, pointing something out, you know, our children pointing something out, we don't want to cede our parental role, I think, which again is a power move. We're not saying that, you know, you should be pushed around by your kids or something like that. But it's a great example of where that we can identify how hard it is to receive feedback really from anybody, truthfully. But especially when it, you know, if somebody's saying, you know, I'm sorry, you interrupted me, let me continue. What, you know, what is your first reaction? Typically, it's like, wait, I didn't. Uh, uh, uh. And so I think that the move would be if you ever get feedback about that is it's not that you swallow it all and believe it, but that somebody is being kind enough to tap you, to give you a little warning signal. And, it, and again, it's like 
we're trying to cultivate a thank you, like, okay, thank you. Let me think about that. That's even a catch. What we're trying to help you do is not move into an all-knowing place, not explain, not give the paragraph. It's like move into the catcher's position. Tell me more. As you were saying that, I was trying to think of what makes it hard for me to do that. Like, it sounds good. Sounds easy. And so I was thinking about it. And it's really easy for me to put myself in my role with my kids and feel it because I can feel like, A, it does feel shameful. And then it's like, oh, wait, all of a sudden my identity's in question. The parts of me that's worked really hard now gets washed away by the idea of privilege. So now my kids aren't seeing me for my work. They're only seeing me in this moment through this privilege, which actually isn't true. Like if you stop to think of it, the threat in that, and for this, this is a, a little bit of a power over dynamic. This is hierarchically, my, I'm supposed to be the example to my children and all of a sudden they're schooling me. So it is a position where I can feel like, wait, you don't get to school me. So my defense is already kicked in more, right? Like I'm ready to stand. But the interesting thing is when you were saying like how to come back, you were doing it so kind, like, hey, you've interrupted me. And I think about my kids doing that and typically that isn't how they're approaching it. They are kind of approaching it as I got you. So it's another flip in the power over, right? I'm going to catch you doing wrong. And now they've assumed a position of power over. And now we're in a power struggle and we don't even realize it. It's so true. And I loved my conversation with Loretta Ross, who helped us understand that part of why somebody does that is their own shame. It's like, it's a lot easier to point out how everybody else is getting race wrong and getting all these things wrong than it is to really be honest and look in the mirror at some of our own uh, mess. So I really like that you said that, Anne, around like, oh, this gets so tricky. (laughs) The other thing is it's very dynamic because this is also a point that it's not about the person because when the situation changes, the positions change. You know, if you're the person in the room with the most power, whether it's explicit or implicit. So let's say you're the boss. You're going to be leading the conversations more. You'll interrupt more often. You'll direct it. And then people will tend to support your ideas and support your positions. But that same boss goes into another situation where maybe they're in a room with their bosses or the hierarchy changes. Then they're in the position of being interrupted, allowing the interruptions, non-verbally and verbally supporting the person that has more power talking. So what we're really describing isn't a person. It is how people respond to power. Another quick example of that is like, this isn't true anymore, really. But I used to think of it in terms of who controls the remote control at home. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, that's the person with the power, I guarantee you. (laughs) And so a way to explore that is like, you know, can I control the remote control? And how does that feel for you to hold the remote control? And how does it feel for the other person for you to hold the remote control? And for you to actually be navigating the channels and the volume and all of those things. No, that's a great example. I love it. Yeah. And an example of that, it's not the person that it really is the dynamic. And the dynamic moves, right? You can say, well, with all my friends, I never have this issue. I only have that with you. And then you have to stop and go, okay, but what is it about that dynamic? And it could be also, it could be that somebody's so used to seating and maybe that isn't an issue, but you get so used to it that we fall into this dynamic of that. And we'll talk more about that later. We'll talk about the defensive seating. But right now we're talking about the defense of power over. Right. And they do go so much together, though, because if you're with someone that naturally seeds, it pushes your position up a little bit and you end up 
moving into that position that is actually like it is dynamic because then as somebody takes their their space and their words and their power a little bit more it does even it out it naturally evens it out where i'm not blaming the cedar but i am just saying that i do think these are intricately interwoven and i've gotten help with it certainly when people that i was doing that to that i didn't realize i was doing that to i'm thinking of a specific co-therapy example <laughs> that i just was always the expert just i couldn't not be the expert and the only way that finally I was able to see it is that I realized the other person had all the vulnerability and I just thought, well, I can't help but be competent. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was missing was the vulnerability. Any part of me that kind of wasn't sure or didn't know was cut off and I just was the expert. And when I kind of really like, oh, it was really, really hard to see. And just one other quick thing is that this is all degree, right? So there's always going to be a power difference. We're saying that's healthy. That's normal. Somebody's going to be controlling the remote control. But when you find yourself either in the position of someone always talking over you, always taking that dominant position, or if you're in that where you're always explaining, you're the one in the know, that is a defense to intimacy. That's the one that we're really focusing on today. And I was just thinking about more subtle examples of that because we started off with just general conversations and I was thinking a more subtle example is that if you're talking with somebody who may have that intimacy issue and not recognize it and have that defense strategy and not recognize it, you might feel yourself hungry for the catch. And so what may happen is you're trying to tell them something and the first thing out of their mouth, like, oh, you know, I was so frustrated when blah, 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 blah happened. And a response of over and under said, so, well, yeah, I mean, you should have known that, like, in other words, the answer back is to, it, it, on one level, is trying to help you. Yeah, if you would have known this, that wouldn't have happened. So let me tell you, no, 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 yeah, what you needed to do, what you should have done, what next time you need to do. And so if we hold it more subtly, like I want to be in the body of that person, because it's easy to say, don't do that. It's harder to recognize that you do it and to slow it down. So or if it's happening to you, that when somebody's talking to you and they feel like some frustration or some upsetness, it is a bid for intimacy. And if your expectation in your body throughout your life is to fix the problem or to be the expert and people turn to you and they count on you, you might have a slight bit of anxiety just even being in that person's struggle. And if you're not used to my emotions and you don't, emotions weren't safe, you're not liking that I'm upset. So that is going to hit your body in this threatening level, then that makes you want to give me the advice. That's the one that makes you want to get on top and say, let me tell you what you need to do next time. And then if you come back, it's like, no, you're not listening to me. You're asking me my advice. And I'm like, no, I wasn't actually. I was telling you how frustrating this was. I've already told you what to do about this. So I don't know why we're still talking about it. <laughs> so, so, so recognizing that defense, if you're the one out there that goes, oh my God, when somebody's telling me something and it's so obvious and they're not seeing it, how am I supposed to sit on that? It's so obvious. And you're telling me just to sit here and be mute. So yeah, I'm telling you to catch it. You know, the other thing that comes to my mind is about, you know, we did on another series, we talked about specifically about narcissism, about difficult personalities in general. But there was a lot of people interested in the one on narcissism. And there's an element of this, that in our culture, we do breed, we say that we don't like it. But the truth is, when somebody's very narcissistic, people flock around them. And this is something that there's a cultural pressure towards it. 
we can't help but be like it's in our DNA a little bit. But right now, I think that it has gotten so polarized and so toxic, this power over. And as a matter of fact, if you think about the defense of shaming someone, mocking them, things like that, that if you're not with me, then you're a sissy or you're a snowflake or you're an idiot or whatever it is. It's really hard when you're in that one down position. If somebody's really aggressively, you either know and you're up here or you don't know and you're stupid. That's a hard thing to navigate. And as a matter of fact, if you're in a polar, anything that's polarized like that, like you're either right or you're wrong or you're the best looking or you are nothing, then you can rest assured that you're not in the top part of your brain, that there's some threat happening and you're oversimplifying probably a complex situation. Yeah, you're oversimplifying it and you've probably cut off access to those other parts because when we feel threatened and the thing that's really hard about this is that anytime we kind of get into the power over position, it can't be a safe connection. So it actually then communicates to your body, you need to be more alone because you won't really feel connected to that person. Like even if they see, you're not really connecting. So the truth is your body's going to know you're more alone. So it's a self-perpetuating kind of experience because our body actually knows to be in connection is the safest, most healthy way to be. It is. And yet there's the threat of like, oh my God, this person's very close to me. Help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or I can see their desire to get closer. Ah! Oh, isn't that true? (laughs) Isn't that true? It's like, try to get closer. And Anne, I liked you going to the subtle example earlier. So I'm wondering if we can also just kind of tease apart a little bit. So you're in the know. I'm thinking of different experiences that I've had where that in, in trying to get the person to join, like even a very small gesture of joining and how, what it feels like the person's giving up. The person who's knowing the resistance is well, what is it? Like, even if, as you're listening, it's like, what is actually that resistance? Do you know what I mean, Anne, about like when you're encouraging somebody, oh, just do a joining statement. It sounds so easy. (laughs) Like, what do you think is that, mm, that block moving into the receptive position or the shared position? There's some, we've got to be able to get over the speed bump of whatever that initial break is. So can you help me? Like, what are the words of that initial the stop, I'm pushing my hand out into the air, like the hold or the stop or the break. What do you think? Well, I think that that there's a couple of different layers to that, isn't there? But I think one of the things, it is really interesting when somebody that struggles with this, this kind of over in the, in the, the fear of the intimacy that manifests in this defense, they struggle with like what you said, it's really amazing. Kind of, even if you say, say this joining statement, you will see them divert their eyes their whole body feels threatening. And if I say, oh, you know, like one of the suggestions I would make to somebody like that is just, you know, think, oh my God, tell me more. That's, or like, think about it. How hard is it for you to say, that's such a good point, right? Somebody's talking and they're telling you something and the joining statement would be, oh my gosh, that is such a good point. And with somebody with this defense, they literally really have a hard time even having those words come out of their mouth. They might even feel then but I'm not that interested in your perspective. You know what I mean? I don't remember what you just said, but it was something that they wanted something from the other person. I think by slowing this down, then you can actually feel they actually aren't looking for anything from the person. They're looking to be heard and known. I think that's a really great way to put it. And so there lies the threat is if I'm in the known, I'm safe. 
But if I'm in the unknown, whether it's my unknown of my knowledge, like if I'm exposed, but also if I have to move out of my position of power, then I feel a little flaily like that. Is, so it, it's a real fear base. And you, which is intolerable. It's so intolerable. intolerable. And, and even to slow people down sometimes in couples therapy and say, you know, can you express them? That's a good point. And you could see really the anxiety coming up in the chest. Somebody that is saying, I don't actually feel much anxiety. You say, well, let's do some joining statements and see how that feels. You will literally see them almost crawl out of their skin. They might for that. Okay, that's a good point. But to be able to say it and feel it is a real challenge. And your question is a good one. Like what is going on? And that's what we want to talk about. What is going on is really something to feel deeply compassionate about in yourself, if it's you or in your partner or sibling or friend, if it's them. And that truly is an experience of almost a young panicked threat that's been disowned. Yeah. I'm glad you're going in that direction. Cause I was also thinking about like, if you're kind of cringing, cause this is you or what have you, cause I can, again, I can totally cringe with you about my version of it. Like this was a strategy developed for a reason. And What's so great about it, like if you stay in that position where you're the one that knows and you're explaining, the other thing is very controlling, like you've got your hands on the wheel and it feels good usually when you're in it. But if we can pry your hands off the wheel and help you share the wheel and help it go back and forth, the reason we're doing that isn't to make you be nice. You know, it's not a social move. It's actually to give you something. The person doesn't know what they're missing when they're the ones in charge. They're never getting that experience of like, ah, being able to sit back and let somebody else drive, being able to not have everything planned out and yet it works out just fine. Maybe not the way you do it, but it works out just fine. So it's very important that like the deconstruction of this is to give you something. It is not to make you behave or be a good boy or be a good girl or be a good whatever, right? It is much more, you don't know it but you're actually really missing out of something that is way more valuable than feeling certain. Right. And in fact, it's so much more value because feeling certain, it's not even more valuable. Feeling certain completely robs you of it because there's, you can't be in a relationship and be in power. You just can't. You can be the one in power. And you can't always be in power. And you can't yeah. always be in power. And when, if it seesaws, you're in good shape. Right. But if, you can, if you're in power, you're not like, that feels good. I mean, I'm not saying walk around and never feel empowered and be in a powerful position. But if you live there and you feel it a threat, like if you're one of those ones out there or if you are in close relationship with somebody that you can't even imagine them saying, oh my God, that is such a good point. And really seeding like that and really feeling it. Then it's something to take a look at about there's a young part of you, a wonderful young part of you that had to learn to stay in a guarded place. And yes, the guarded place when you feel vulnerable and you have some kind of weapon to keep everybody out from the interior, that's smart. Like when you were young, it was smart if it wasn't safe. But now if you're standing there with the the block at the interior What's really happening is that you're not getting close and you may not even know it. And you are, and so what will happen is you won't get fulfilled in intimacy. If you find yourself, like you were saying earlier, if I say, oh, you know, let me tell you about Madrid. And you're like, God, I'm not interested in Madrid. What you're missing out is not just about information about Madrid. What you're missing out on is sharing in my excitement. And when you share in that, you definitely have a crossover, even neurologically, right? In our wires, of this thing that shoots a shared experience that makes you feel more alive in the world. 
And the important point of that is that's sending our body a signal that we're safe. If we always have to be in power, that means we're always building our defense. Our body doesn't ever think it's safe. It stays internally in this auto drive, self-protect, 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 even if we don't know it. And especially we don't know it because we walk around feeling so smart in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And one of the things too to say is here is that when you're the one that is driving, it probably also feels like if you give that wheel up, you're never getting it back. But when this goes well, what happens is that wheel flows back and forth quite fluidly. So you're absolutely going to get it back. But then you're also going to get the benefit of the other person having their hands on the wheel, being more invested. I had an exercise come to my mind when you were talking about sort of trying to find, because again, sometimes this is so embedded, we just not, don't even know, is if you can imagine, you listener, wherever you are, if you can imagine, like, let's say you're laying on the couch and there is someone, friend, sister, brother, doesn't matter, maybe partner, and that you could put your head in their lap and look up at them and into their eyes and they're looking down at you in your eyes that that is a submitted place, right? That is a, I'm putting myself in your lap, literally. So even just imagining that, what happens in your body? Like, is that, does that feel, mm, that would feel good and comfortable? Or are you like bouncing off the couch and like, get the heck away from me? <laughs> <laughs> and that is going to help like, okay, ah, there's something there. And that's the kind of stuff that we're wanting to help you identify and disarm. Oh, I love that example. And maybe we need to turn to a little bit more about what to do about it you know, okay, so now people are like, oh, I'm bored. I can feel my cringe uh, getting close. What next? So feeling the cringe of getting close. So one of the things I wanted to add right before we get there, because when you were saying what was going on internally, sometimes when you ask somebody and they can't ha say that's a good point or I need help and you go, what's going on? One of the first things that can come is like, okay, so it feels like I lose my power. Okay. So what happens if you lose that? It feels like I'm giving something up. And I was like, what are you giving up? Oftentimes what they're saying and what comes to them, and this, this helps about what to do, is the instinctual feeling is I'm going to be taken advantage of. And it won't make intellectual sense to them even at the moment they're saying it. Oftentimes they're like, no, I don't think they're really going to. But the bodied feeling is, is if I open up my vulnerability and I'm not in control, then somebody will take the control. So it's so important to realize that one of the reasons you're there is that you don't have trust that if you give the steering wheel up, that somebody's, like you said, going to give it back, but it's also like, they're going to take advantage of me. It's not safe. So if you really feel like being open in a relational way of connection isn't safe, one of the first things to do is to recognize that, right? That it's not about your partner. It's not about your friend. It's about like, yeah, people take advantage of all the time. I'm not Pollyanna. Well, I am Pollyanna, but I'm not being Polly. You're like, you're a little Pollyanna. Pollyanna. That's true. I'll let me just self-acknowledge <laughs> that. But people do take advantage, but that isn't your adult experience of being taken advantage of that is grounding this, at least mostly. That doesn't mean we can't have it. These are body felt experiences of when you were open for that connection because we are as kids. We need it desperately. It's very important and not getting it was so painful. So it's not really that somebody's going to take advantage, although it might, depending on your history, is that you're feeling the pain of having this desire for intimacy and not getting it. And that sucks. So I just as soon pull away from that and not let myself feel that at all. I just can move in my defenses. Yeah. And you can hear in the projection of what will, what will happen that it's just a fearful fantasy. It's not truth. 
But if you can catch that little moment that you're talking about in yourself, it might be that or it might be something in that neighborhood. But if you think about it, like that's the position you're in, like you're projecting out, like you are controlling something. And so to give it up, like, I guess I'm just saying the fantasy of what's going to happen if you give it up is probably in there as far as what you're doing and why you're holding <laughs> That's a good it. point. So it's another reveal a little bit. And even our, remember our three R's, you know, recognize, reevaluate, reflect, and rewire. So the recognize, uh, we get the cringe. That's a good thing. The cringe is actually really good or the light bulb or however you want to say it. Because that gets you really far, actually, because now you can consciously begin to you know, one, begin to have compassion for yourself, recognizing it's not always the other person. It introduces the idea of choice. Oh, I, I, I let, quit telling yourself that this is like when you're able, like, I can't help this. This is just who I am. Like, like the idea of being able to go, when you cringe and you go, oh, I am doing that. And you can hold a cringe. You quit just saying, this is who I am. I'm like, and, and that's actually wonderful. It's not really that you're not that interested. People will say, I just get bored in conversations. Oftentimes people with this, if they're not in the expert role, right, they often feel bored. It's not that interesting. Right. If that's you and you're out there like, if I'm not in the expert, I'm bored. It's because you're not getting the emotional back and forth that actually fills you up. You get the buildup. And we're trying to sell that this is for you. And it is if you can get into that receiving position and actually take the relationship that power with, we're kind of talking, we're talking about power over and power with. So the wheel going back and forth is a power with, and that you can do for the rest of your life. It's maintainable. It's fulfilling for both of you. It really works. You don't have to hang on to the wheel because it's just going to flow back and forth. On one hand, if we can convince, if we can sell hard enough, the idea that you're losing something and you get interested and you're able to get into that catcher's position and start finding out all these things you're missing by staying in control, then great, it's going to work. That's what I was saying. It's maintainable. But there's going to be some people that you're in relationship with that aren't ever going to buy into this because it's too scary to get out of that power over position. Now we're talking about narcissism. Now we're talking about something that that isn't just, oh, I'm a little afraid. It's like a position in the world that I'm going to protect till the day I die, right? I think about gun rights. I think about stuff like that. There is a huge group of people that are very invested in this position. It's not, I don't think we could do anything to sell, you know, what it is that, where that they would want to buy what we're selling. That there's too much of a loss because they have so much power that to give it up, to give up my gun, like, like let's think of this metaphorically. People aren't after everybody's guns. People are trying to create safe and sane gain, gun laws. I'm stepping into a whole other thing, but it's still, it's related to the culture that part of this gripping on to anything, every single Everybody, 18-year-olds can get it. We don't have to go through things. It has to do with this power over position. And so there are some people that we can't sell this hard enough. They're never going to want to buy it because there's too big of a drop from the power that they're in to where they're going. And they just we wouldn't be able to convince them that that is going to be a gain. And that's very sad for those people because then they're never going to get this thing that we're talking about, about this shared power, about this mutuality about something that's actually quite more powerful than that one weapon, whether it be literal or just verbally controlling the conversation, things like that. So you're probably going, Sue, don't, don't have us talk about gun rights right now. <laughs> Except, you know, we're, we're in, in Texas. Texas. We're, we're recording from Texas, right. not very far from Uvalde. Yeah, so this permeates us. It permeates our clients. It permeates couples out there in relationships. 
It does. And, and I mean, again, we're taking Vista jump on on this, but I used to work with, you know, historically violent juveniles. And one of the things they would talk about is the imperviousness, the, the feeling of strength they had, that they went from a feeling of complete vulnerability to like, I can conquer anything. If I have this gun, nobody can touch me. So it feels like defense, but it's, it's the self-protection of nobody can touch me. But it was really about their internalized fear of where they are. And, and we, have, we could have a whole other dialogue about culture and, you know, like we, we should sort of slow down on that. I don't know. I like the conversation. I think it's completely relevant. And I was also thinking in terms of it's a fantasy that we're safer in any of these positions, it's a fantasy. This notion of safety because somebody a can gun, always have a bigger make you one. Safe as a matter, <laughs> of, uh, somebody's going to have a bigger gun, yeah. right? Or yeah. you're going to have your back to them, or whatever. It's so I like that you're bringing it to the internal state of no. This makes me feel safer, but I'm not actually any safer. As a matter of fact, if we're introducing firearms, my safety's probably dropped. You know, because the guy that was mad at me sees the gun now. He's going to pull his gun, whereas before, he, you know. Like it just ups the ante and it ups the opportunity. Well, in general, I, I agree with you, Sue, but I think it also, we have to be super aware that we're two privileged white women sitting in our offices in Austin, Texas. And so it's a lot easier for us to say having a gun never is going to make us safer. But in actuality, that isn't true for some cultures and some places and some locations and some of the kids. Like, so it's kind of a broad statement. Oh, I like that you put the feet to the fire about that. I think that's right. It is true. Who am I to say something like that, right? Around like, oh, it'll, it's never, it will never make you safer. I still, I wonder about that. I certainly know the feeling would be there, but I really love you pointing out like that we don't want to make these sweeping generalizations from our position of privilege and power and that we need to continue to keep our feet grounded around things that we don't know that are outside of our experience. Well, I, I'm going to agree with you that I don't know a place. Well, that's, I can't say, I will not say conclusively, but it is a very small rarity that an 18 year old being able to get a hold of a mass shooting gun without a background check is going to make anybody safer in this world. It instead keeps us all in an experience of threat. And that if we keep saying, Oh, cause what we're going to do is that rearm and rearm. And now we're going to arm these people like, Truth be told, the same is true for what we're talking about in this. If we live in our defenses, it evokes defense in other people. And so then everybody armors up. And this is what the whole point of this podcast series is about, is stopping those cycles that you're talking about of arming, 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 and taking the risk, the safe, small risks of turning towards and moving in relationship. So Mainly what though I'm going back to this notion of the feeling of safety and the feeling of power is just that. And as a matter of fact, the more hierarchical system that it is, you know, somebody's then fighting for your position who, you know, the ones below you are scrambling to knock you off so that they can stand there. Whereas the thing we're selling, which is mutuality, respect, relationship, power with, that is a maintainable place. You're not going to be, you don't have to worry about getting pushed off. Like there's enough space for everybody. So I, I wish we could sell it. It would be cool if we could actually <laughs> sell it where somebody wanted to buy it, you know? Well, if you, if you bring it back to, again, let's go back to the three R's. We talked about the cringe factor, the recognizing, and then the reflection, like what is the threat? So if we bring it back to 
what is the threat in that moment if I join? And where did I learn yeah. it? And what is my history about power? And how are my parents? How did they handle power? And all of those things. That's part of the reflection. That's part of reflection. Yeah. And the idea of also sort of, okay, what is the threat in my own body when I try to join? Can I see all of the signs that I quickly turn it to a power over position and really recognize that. And if I'm able to do that, or if you're able to recognize that maybe you're in a relationship that somebody does that all the time and that you're seeding, we'll talk again about that, but how difficult that is. So now we're also talking about, you said, what do we do to rewire it, right? How we reflect it. We look at the childhood things. What are we fighting for? Why is it, why do we need to have the power over? Because if we join, it doesn't feel safe. Well, we're telling you that joining is where safety lies. And Joining with safe people, joining with other people who are That's joined. when I said we could go into a whole, a whole thing about society and culture, right? Because I can't say, depending on where you are in the world, not having a weapon doesn't make you safer. Like, we don't want to sort of globalize this, but it's like, when you're with safe people, when you are there in a relationship with somebody who wants to be heard and wants to connect with you, the safest thing you can do is to actually have that experience of connection and to give the connection. And if it's something that your young body still feels that threatened, it's such a great thing to take on. And one of the ways to do it, you can't change it all just through insight, right? Sometimes I just like to literally sometimes by just doing and you do these things that you say, okay, this is really hard for me, but it's better for me. So I'm just going to do it. And I work with people. A small oh. risk, a small risk, little and risk. even just having them in session say, I need help, or that's a good point, or I got you, or could you tell me more about that? Or say, okay, when you go home, I want you to do it three or four times at the dinner table tonight. You'll see the eyes go big. Yeah. People will yeah, love but it. Giving those statements and I see people get immediately, they come back, they're closer to their kids they're closer to their spouse. It has an immediate effect. So there is a fake it till you make it element to it. In other words, learn what it's like to join and help yourself recognize that actually you aren't taken advantage of. So go in there. It's like, I'm going to be taken advantage of like, try me, say it, say what happens. And inevitably when somebody does it, they feel the immediate reception from the other person almost always. Like, tell me more. And then all of a sudden your body goes, oh, this does feel a little safer. This isn't what happened to me as a kid. And so sometimes we just have to skill build. And I'm a big proponent for, if you really struggle with this, for improv classes. And we can talk more about that. But improv classes about join first and then you add your thing later. So you don't just, oh, you're going to toss it to me and I'm going to go off. It's like if you really struggle with just really catching people, an improv class makes your body go through these actions. And as you do it, not only does your body learn to do it, your body starts to feel how good it feels and they start blending together. I love that you brought up improv. I think it's a great therapeutic tool. And I'm also just aware that you are really good at selling this, that it's going to go well. It's like, I'm on board with everything that you're saying, but I'll be the other voice of, and if people don't treat you well, as you open up, as you do small risks, like do little test balloons, make sure it's safe. And uh, I'll be the more paranoid one. You can be the more hopeful one that you give them a chance basically, because you're still, your heart's still going to beat fast. You're going to say a little more maybe, or you'll do a joining statement, see how it goes, and then have them earn your trust to open up more and more. Because we are assuming safe, we're assuming good enough. You're in relationships that are good enough, not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to drop it. That's part of why we don't want to do it is because it hurts to like hope for something and not get it. But then that puts you in a more relational place. It's like, oh, I feel a little disappointed. That's great. 
you know, when we know everything and whatever, we might not feel disappointed, but we're missing a whole bunch of other things. And we're pushing people away. And so people just end up, you know, a lot of times people in this position think that their spouse and their children are happy and are, are shocked. They're baffled when like, I give you everything. What's the problem? And so we're trying to help you guys save a ton in couples therapy <laughs> and a lot of pain that sort of, you know, and I liked last, a couple of times ago, you said, check in with people close to you. So you might check in with someone near you around like, how good are you at sharing power or how, you know, do you tend to over talk? Do you tend to interrupt or how much, you know, I guess here would be a question and you and I could play with this too, but like, if you think of a dyad, like who's the one, could y'all both agree on what percentage that people manage? Cause it will be different. It probably won't be 50, 50, but who, you know, who's the one that controls the remote control the most, you know, like, Oh yeah, you, you 60% to you, 40% to me, you know, yeah, maybe that's fine. But if y'all are agreeing or disagreeing, you know, it's actually like 90, 10. Well, at least now the 90% person is going to, what? You think I do it 90%? No, I think, but now y'all are having this relational conversation about power, which would be awesome. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We'd love to. And if you have those conversations, it'd be kind of fun. Toss something in our notes to us we, in our speak pipe. We would love to hear. So we're doing this now, speak pipe, or we're doing it on YouTube now. And so that's a really easy way to leave comments under the video. So we'll be reading those and taking that information in. And then also, if these things are helpful, if you're still listening there's something that you can do for us. Doesn't cost a penny. And that is to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people discover the show. And we are very proud to have been hanging out in the top 10 of Apple social science. But sometimes people come on and, you know, the last bad review, by the way, that we got said that we weren't good at, I'm making it sound nicer than it was, that we are heterosexist and don't talk about gender. We, we talk about gender as a binary, which was frankly shocking to me. <laughs> I'm going to say vulnerably, it wasn't shocking to me because I think you do a better job of that than I do. Like about really bringing it back to gender nonconformist issues. So I understand why you were shocked, but I think you do a better job of that than I do. And so on some level, it was really like, I mean, I feel it in my body, but I don't think I say it and bring our guest to, around to it quite enough. So I, I thought that you know, I could take some of that feedback. Okay. That was a great example of a really good catch. Oh, well. Um, it made me feel great because I slightly agree, but I would never say that <laughs> <laughs> ever in a million years. No, it's true though. But yeah. like, to me, it's like, I feel closer to you. I feel safer with you that you're sort of evaluating and owning something like that. And it's just such a great example. You didn't lose anything by that. You didn't lose power by saying that. I think that you probably, and the list to the listener either, I think that you gained power, you gained respect and credibility by recognizing a vulnerability or something that you're working on. It was a fantastic example of what we're just talking about right now, that you had the you had the strength and the security and the capacity to, to name something small, but that mattered and it's something that you don't feel great about. And I think your esteem, if we had a stock market, I think your esteem would have gone up right then, which demonstrates the point that vulnerability and that sharing power is going to get you more. It's not going to actually, whatever our fantasy fears are about. Because we're sharing connection. So, all right, y'all. Okay. Yeah. You troops go and explore these ideas and do some experiments. It'll be fun. All right. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you around the bend.
Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.